Was that not some beautiful Christmas music? Do you appreciate our musicians? Good morning to you. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside, and it is really great to see you today for Advent Week Part 2. Christmas is coming. We Seitzes are getting our Christmas tree this afternoon. We're very, very excited about it. But to put us all into the Yuletime spirit a little more than we are right now, I want you to do something right now. I want you to take one minute, look around, find somebody who you didn't come in with today, and I want you to share one Christmas tradition that must be observed in your home or Christmas isn't Christmas, okay? And Jack and Jenny LaSalle, I want you to meet Nick and Brittany, trade Christmas traditions, helping things out here. Go ahead. Okay, I got a question for you now that you're back, after you've traded your traditions. I want to know, just raise your hand if you heard a tradition that surprised you, that you'd never thought of anything like that. Not too many, at least uh, somebody, the Golickies over there. You know, maybe you're sitting by somebody who told you about drinking glog at Christmas. Uh, we have Swedish heritage here at the church, and so sometimes you're in for those little surprises, okay, at Hillside. But at least for Allison and me, a growing tradition is to watch the best Christmas movie ever made, and sorry, Stephen Weissong, it does not involve puppets. It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody agree with me? Yes. And uh, that final scene still, after many, many viewings, gives me this huge lump in my throat. And, uh, but my real reason for bringing up It's a Wonderful Life is because at its core is a problem that our kingly visions passage provides a solution to. And you're going to see what I mean in just a minute, but let's get right to it. Malachi 3, 1 through 4, if you have your message notes with you, if somebody gave those to you when you walked in, you can find it there. If not, it's up on the screen. Listen to God's word, our second kingly vision. It says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is God's word. This is a rich passage, and understanding the historical context makes it richer. But suffice it to say that the ancient writer here is promising that someday at the first Christmas, a great king would come who would purify his people, purify them so that they could live and worship rightly before him. And that God has, in fact, sent this purifying king is the best news. 
It's news to rejoice in this morning. It's news to live into joyfully all year. And the reason is the Christmas gift of a purifying king is the supreme solution to a nettlesome human problem, the problem of shame. And as you might know, shame has gotten a lot of attention in the culture over the last decade. And part of the surge of interest in shame is a, just a fantastic TED Talk that the psychologist Brene Brown gave about 10 years ago. And the YouTube video of her talk has gotten, I think, almost 6 million views at this point. And in this video, Brene makes the point that shame is shockingly destructive to us. And it is the cause of all sorts of serious mischief in our lives. One of the memorable quotes from this great talk is this one. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. And we know this to be true, don't we? When we are struggling, when we are failing in some way, circling the drain emotionally or some other way, and we bury it, we barricade ourselves away, we make things much worse, don't we? Often through all sorts of kinds of self-medicating, okay, like with a bottle or the credit card or acting out in some other way. Well, Brene goes on to offer an excellent solution. It's empathy she says. And in a continuation of this famous quote above, she says, if you put the same amount of shame in the Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. And that is powerful. And of course, Brene Brown is right. When, when we take the risk of sharing our failures with a trusted friend and that friend looks at us and pours out grace and understanding and compassion. We feel liberated, and a great weight is lifted from our shoulders, and that's because vulnerability and relief go together like Christmas cookies and cider. But I want to tell you, this week I've spent a lot of time thinking about the problem of shame, thinking about it from our particular perspective as Christians and trying to understand it even more deeply. And as I did, it occurred to me that shame is actually several concepts in one. And I want to show you, and to begin, let's just define shame. According to one dictionary, shame is a, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, that's a very, very good start. But if we think about it, we actually discover that shame can be broken down more precisely. And to help you see, I've created the shame taxonomy. And I've entitled it the Brady Bunch Box of Shame. Okay, And if you're of a certain age, you get the reference. For instance, shame can be either mild or severe. 
And some shame, some pain due to consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior is mild, but, you know, we wouldn't say that it's debilitating. And I'll give you an example. When I was in fifth grade at Laneview Elementary School in San Jose, we had a class pet, a little brown mouse called Herman. And the teacher strictly prohibited all of us from ever holding Herman unless she was present. And at one point, for a reason that still baffles me, because I cannot stand rodents, uh, I was seized by this overwhelming desire to have personal contact with Herman. And anyway, during a time when all the other kids were out, I don't even know why, probably playing slaughter ball, which was still allowed in the 70s, a very, very difficult, different time, I reached into the cage and I hoisted up Herman. And if you're wondering why I would so brazenly define my teacher, it might help to know that my fifth grade teacher was Andrea Seitz, my own mother, believe it or not. <laughs> and Herman and I were having a nice time together, connecting, sort of having that interspecies connection until Herman bit me on the finger. And it wasn't really painful, but it was so surprising and so shocking that I threw Herman. And it wasn't anger. It was just instinct. I was so surprised. And I think my feelings were hurt as well, not expecting this from Herman. Well, I pick up Herman, I put him back in the cage, and I, I bolt out of the classroom and nobody found out. This is the first time anyone besides my twin brother has heard my story about uh, Herman. And now Darren Seitz is not going to be able to blackmail me about it anymore. Now, thankfully, Herman was fine. Nevertheless, I felt shame over this. And um, I felt a painful feeling of distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And I actually remember it to this day, thus this story, but I've got to be honest, it was pretty mild shame, okay? It certainly didn't lead me to drink too much glog in life, all right? Now, maybe that callousness is shameful. I don't know. And by the way, I could never share that story back in Davis because there were just too many vets around, okay? <laughs> but it works okay here. But the point, shame can be mild, uh, and then, of course, pretty consequential, inconsequential. On the other hand, shame can be very severe. And when shame is severe, like Brene Brown says, it's highly destructive. I mean, really destructive. Correlating, like it does, with pathologies like addiction and depression and eating disorder. So again, first, shame can be broken down into mild and severe forms. And then secondly, shame can be either true or false. Now, by true, hear me here, I don't mean healthy or adaptive necessarily. I just mean grounded in reality, meaning the painful feeling is grounded in genuinely wrong behavior. You know, throwing around class pets just for fun would be an example. On the other hand, if that shame, that painful feeling isn't grounded in genuinely wrong behavior, but rather wrong thinking, then it's false. And I'll give you an example of that. A teenager who feels 
like she's just not enough because she doesn't look like the influencers on Instagram is experiencing false shame because obviously there's no fault in not looking like some airbrushed model who herself, of course, does not look like her own picture. And though real and painful and something to be taken very seriously by all of the adults in her life, her mentors, her shame is false or better, unwarranted, okay? So to understand false shame, you could think of George Bailey's shame from It's a Wonderful Life, right? And this is because there's nothing wrong about staying home in Bedford Falls and helping your hometown rather than going to the big city to become an architect. Now, let's set aside mild shame in both its false and true forms. Let, let's move aside from boxes one and two because it's mild. It doesn't mean much one way or the other. And let's just focus now on boxes three and four. Severe shame and shame in both its false and true forms in the particular sense that we've defined them, all right? Brene Brown's remedy. Deep empathy and understanding from trusted friends is a bullseye solution for box three shame. And this is an example that Brown gives and one that I can actually relate to. A lot of men feel shame when they're just not that handy with tools, all right? Like uh, guys like Chris Harala and Walt Jackson are here at the church, two really skilled craftsmen. And that shame that guys like me feel is real in the sense of genuinely experienced, but false in the sense that it's unwarranted because obviously there's no rule that men have to be good with tools. Nothing about genuine or authentic masculinity requires that. So in that case, like Brown says, empathy is the perfect and adequate remedy for shame. Like when somebody says to me, Dan Seitz, you are not less of a man because you need Frank Canova to come over to your house to hang up your pull-up bar, okay? Like he did. Okay. And about that, I, I can't even do one pull-up right now. But Keon Amelie is going to help me, okay? So thank you, Keon. What about box four? Empathy is a great solution for box three. What about box four? What about the case of what we've called true shame or warranted shame, meaning a painful awareness of having done something seriously and genuinely wrong? And that shame that I also have experienced from time to time. And empathy would certainly be part of the solution to that kind of shame, but it, it wouldn't be the whole solution, right? There would have to be more, and I'll give you an example, and I'm going to give you an intense one, all right? But why not talk about real things? Think about these three. Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan. What do they do? They shot Armand Arbery for no reason other than hatred. And in their case, we hope that they feel shame. We hope that these men feel a painful feeling of distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior because they have, in fact, done serious wrong. And ironically, it's because we're compassionate. It's because, as Christians, we love our enemies 
that we desire that they feel that painful feeling, at least for a while. Because without that feeling, without that painful awareness, there's no chance for repentance. There's no chance for heart change. There's no chance for complete transformation, which we hope for as Christians and actually believe is possible for them because of how extravagant God's grace is. It can reach everyone. Let me give you another example. Daryl Brooks, a couple of weeks ago, drives his SUV through a crowd of people at a Christmas parade, killing six, injuring 60. Similarly, at least apparently, out of hate. And again, we hope that Daryl experiences a painful feeling of distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior because he has, in fact, done something seriously wrong. We hope this as Christians, not out of spite, but ironically, out of love for Daryl. Because without that feeling, at least for a while, there's no chance for repentance. There's no chance for heart change and complete transformation, which we desire for him and which as Christians we believe is possible because of how extravagant God's grace is. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, those are very, very extreme examples, and they are. Let me give you a more everyday one. I know a person who knows a person who knows a person who knows a person who over many years, through insensitive treatment, has caused very deep wounds to his wife. And I actually believe that this person feels pain over his pattern of emotional abuse. Now, this person needs empathy. And if I could get near the person, I'd want to be the one to give it. But if you think about it, empathy alone is not enough. Because if the only thing this person experiences is the neutralization of those painful feelings, then the abusive behaviors that caused the shame in the first place will continue as before, right? Ultimately causing more family damage and ironically, ultimately causing more shame. And friends, this is why the Bible's particular solution to shame, the solution we get in the kingly vision of today's passage is so powerful. It includes everything that our contemporary culture offers in terms of a solution to shame. But you know what it does? It goes way beyond it. You see, first, Jesus, the purifying king whom we're celebrating today and at Christmas, he offers empathy. In fact, he offers divine empathy. Listen to what the Bible says about him. This is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What is Hebrews telling us? Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. Psalm 103, a passage we as a council studied yesterday in our retreat, says God understands that we're dust. But Jesus can understand because in addition to being fully divine, he's fully human. And being fully human, he felt the full weight of our temptations. And so Jesus is able to understand and have compassion for us. 
And this means something really good. It means that when we have failed and when we find ourselves buried in shame and self-contempt, we can look up into Jesus' face and we can count on his acceptance and his consolation and his embrace. And he never gives up on us. He never runs out of second chances for us. But here's the thing. He doesn't stop there. And that's because as Malachi, the ancient prophet, writes, Jesus is not just the empathic king. Oh, he's that. But he's also the purifying king. Jesus, the king, offers empathy and repair, which is our big idea for the morning. Jesus takes us into his heart and his life, and then in a process that involves our joyful participation and, and this is very important, our very close connection with other disciples, say in a birdhouse or group, he begins to refine us. And he begins to burn away our impurities, scraping away the slag until we shine. Now, someone might be thinking, especially somebody sort of new to Christianity, just sort of exploring the faith, you know, it's so hard to admit that I am fundamentally flawed, that there's something about me that's askew, which seems to be what Christianity demands. Now, admittedly, that is a very tough pill for modern people to swallow, but you know what makes it a gel cap <laughs> rather than a chalky pill? Let's go back to the Malachi passage. Look at the main metaphor right in the middle of the passage. Malachi tells us that Jesus, the purifying king, is a silversmith. What does that make us? It makes us the silver. Our impurities notwithstanding, we're still precious metal. Something that no other worldview really furnishes us. And friends, the Bible demands, and this is a serious demand of the Bible, something we must do. We must understand ourselves, the Bible says, even in our worst moments, not as muck, but as masterpieces. God's handmade masterpieces. Yes, we're marred in many ways, but we are masterpieces nonetheless. And as that understanding of our fundamental preciousness comes and lives inside us, it gives us the freedom, the margin, the ability, the confidence to acknowledge that, yeah, we do need God's reparative work to make us who he imagined we would be in the first place. And you could think about it this way. We need that restoration the same way that a priceless Renaissance painting needs its colors brightened every so often. The way that painting needs its canvas restitched. How do we do it? How do we jump into that refining process? You know, the most important way, bar none, is to jump into spiritual community. We need each other. We need to be closely connected with other disciples on the way. And then with those co-journeyers, you know what we do? We share who we are. We share our struggles. We're vulnerable. 
We're confident that we won't be shamed because Christians don't do that to each other. We don't shame each other, and we definitely don't do that here at Hillside. And with the people who love us and believe in us and who are already beginning to see God's reflection emerging in us, you know what we do? We plot practical ways in partnership with the king who loves us, the purifying king, just to to put off the old and to put on the new through every kind of possible way. And you know how else we submit to the refining fire of our loving and purifying king in times when we're feeling bad? And just more broadly, you know what we do? It's convenient. We take communion. We take the meal because in communion, you know what we experience so much? But we experience the ultimate divine empathy. We are reminded of the absolute fullness of our forgiveness. And in communion, we experience the real presence of the king who loved us so much he went to the cross for us. And the king who at the same time is relentless about refining us into the purest silver until, just like the master silversmith, he can see his own reflection. We're going to go to the table now. Our purifying king, our loving king, you know, he invites all of us, everybody in this room who has trusted him as sin bearer to share this feast that he's provided for us, for our good, our joy, our nourishment. And what's more, we are welcome to bring all of our failures, all of our futilities, all of our frustrations, all of our shame, whether true or false, we're welcome come to him, to throw ourselves before him, to receive his strength for the journey ahead, to power on in whatever's next. Before we take these elements, let's take a few minutes. Let's let's enjoy it. Let's be silent before him. Let's enjoy his presence. You know, he's here. He's here. The room is heavy with his presence. He's in each one of us who knows him personally. He's among us collectively. And if we brought in shame today of any kind, you know what? Let's do this. Let's let it melt away in the fire of his grace and forgiveness, which we have because of his sacrifice for us. And if that shame grows out of something illusory like our failure to live up to some kind of illegitimate standard, let's ask Jesus to remind us of who we are, silver, a precious metal, and because of that, we are of infinite value. We don't have to prove anything to anyone. We exist for his pleasure alone. And on the other hand, if that shame grows out of an awareness of something we've done wrong, let's confess it to him. We have a faithful high priest. And then let's similarly let it melt away in the fire of his grace and mercy. And then let's tack on a prayer that he would lead us down any new refining road he would have us tread in joyful expectation of real change. Let's take that time now.